Welcome to the Battleground podcast. I think today we'll have another session of energy conversation for the serious. It'll be a podcast that's an antidote to the wishful thinking that seems to dominate much of the climate and energy debate. One of the big mistakes, I think, over the last 20 years or possibly longer in the energy and climate debate is that we've left engineers out of the room. We decided that they were irrelevant and we it's one of the reasons, I guess, that we've come up with a policy that looks great on paper, but turns out to be a nightmare in practice. Tony Irwin is a technical director of SMR Nuclear Technology. He's a chartered engineer with extensive experience in nuclear power and research reactor commissioning and operations, project management, regulatory interaction, safety culture and training in nuclear science and technology. He was the reactor manager for the commissioning of the early operation of Anstow's new Opal reactor at Lucas Heights in Sydney. And uh, before that, he had a long career with, a, in Britain with the Central Electricity Generating Board uh, when he uh, had, uh, was involved in the operation of eight nuclear power plants in the UK. So, Tony, welcome to Battleground. And I guess uh, we can take it that you've some experience in this area of nuclear nuclear energy. Thank you, Nick. Yes, I've, I've had a, a very interesting career. So I, I graduated as an electrical power engineer, joined the Central Electricity Generating Board in the UK, which was then responsible for all the electricity. Um, did a two-year graduate training where you go around all the coal-fired stations, nuclear stations, transmission, everything. At the end of the two years, they said, what would you like to do? And I said, nuclear. So I, I got my first appointment at Albury, one of the old Magnox stations, which was then going through the, the commissioning phase. So I finished commissioning there. And then they started on the next generation of, of big advanced gas cooled reactors. So I moved down to the first of those, Hinkley Point B, commissioned that. And then when that got steady, the next one was Hesham. So I moved up to Hesham, commissioned that. And then they built a second station at Hesham. So well, this might be a good place to start because I, we want to come on, obviously, and discuss small modular reactors, the latest uh, generation of nuclear technology, which shows tremendous promise, I think. But first, in order to get our heads around why it's such a breakthrough, take us back to those early forms of nuclear generation. When did nuclear generation start in Britain and what were those reactors like? So the first one was at Calder Hall in 1956 and that was the, actually the, the first commercial-sized nuclear power plant in the world at, at Calder Hall. And that was a gas-cooled reactor. Only 50 megawatts, so we'd, we'd, call, we'd call that a small modular reactor, except it wasn't modular. It was we might call it a micro <laughs> reactor a micro now. Way. So it was built by the people who built battleships at, uh, at Barrow and Furness. So it mm. was built to last, and it lasted 50 years, and it did very well. So then we progressed from those Magnox reactors to the advanced gas-cooled reactors, higher temperature, better efficiency, used better turbines, two of them. Um, and then, unfortunately, they, they nationalised the, the whole electricity industry in, in the UK and it fell into a bit of a mess. And then we had the dash for gas and no more nuclear now. And now they've started rebuilding now. So Hinkley Point, next generation now. But because nuclear has been so long a fixture of, of British life with, with very little in the way of uh, 
safety concerns, for instance, it's probably more easily accepted in Britain than here. Oh, it is, because lots of people live close. I mean, Hesham is actually on a major port. Hesham is like a, a power station on Port Botany. Mm. It actually sits on the, on the port at, at Hesham. You could see houses outside the control room, you know, and because these, these are very safe reactors. Yeah. So the impression we get, let's, first of all, let's say, I think people's fears tend to stem from instances like Three Mile Island, from uh, more recently Fukushima, uh, and of course Chernobyl. But even those instances, when you put them in perspective, dangerous as they might have been at the time, uh, the actual loss of life or, 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 or injury was, in each case, was many magnitudes smaller than possibly people think in their imagination, right? The, the, the safety aspect of these things, even when they're in poor conditions, like the Chernobyl nuclear reactor in, in Ukraine, um, they do not create the sort of uh, you know, Armageddon that people imagine they might. No, nobody died as a result of the Three Mile Island accident. That was a pressurised water reactor that had a partial melt. It had a full containment, so it was really contained within that. Chernobyl was a sort of reactor that would never have been licensed in, in the West. It was a unique uh, design, water-cooled but graphite-moderated as well, uh, basically unstable. Combine that with a very poor safety culture that was trying to do a, a test and kept uh, overriding all sorts of protection, etc. Um, and of course, there was some loss of life at Chernobyl. And after Chernobyl, um, I went. I was one of the ones that went on a mission to to Russia. Um, and we sort of advised them on safe operation. And then I had uh, Russian engineers come to the UK and worked with me on shift at the UK to see how we operated. So that the whole of the culture, I think, changed completely. And everybody came under the, the international, the IAEA standards for, for mm. nuclear. Mm. So, so that's right. So uh, post-Chernobyl, certainly... Um, the safety record of, of nuclear has been very good. I mean, if you look kilo, terawatt hour for terawatt hour, it's it's safer than solar or, or wind, bizarrely, uh, because people fall off roofs putting <laughs> panels up and so forth. Mm. Uh, so the, the safety concerns, uh, I think we can put our minds at rest to that, even with those earlier generations of nuclear. But you move on to small modular reactors and it's a different game, right? Yes, um, and even the the new big reactors. See that the, the way of cool, the the way of safely managing the reactors. There's two things you have to do. The first thing is you have to stop the nuclear reaction, and that's the easy bit. You drop in control rods, the reaction stops. Even at Fukushima, all the control rods inserted, the reaction stopped. But you've got to continue to remove the heat because it's still being produced. Now, traditionally, people used to have pumps, uh, backup diesel supplies, external water, all these sort of things. And this was the trouble at Fukushima, that they lost all the outside supplies. So modern reactors now have what they call passive systems. So they use gravity, they use uh, air pressurised tanks, um, they use uh, convection and conduction systems. So they don't need any external supplies, no backup diesels, 
um, no operator action. So they've, they've all got this passive safety. And with a small reactor, you can really do that well because you've got less of, of a, a nuclear material in the core anyway. So they're, they're much easier to, to make really safe. So small modular reactor technology has been around for how long? Well, I mean, you could say 60 years because they're used in nuclear power submarines and, mm. and icebreakers for, for a long while. So the, the, the technology is well known. I think there's, there's three reasons why now there's more of a, an interest in small modular reactors. First is the capital cost of a big reactor, and it, it, it does cost a lot of money. The second is the, the, the time to construct it. I mean, even a, a good construction is probably five years. Uh, but the third reason as well is it's too big for, for small grid systems. So, for instance, somewhere like Australia, you'd be a bit more better in having smaller reactors rather than, you know, very big reactors because we've got this very long, drawn-out grid system, 5,000 kilometres, one of the, the longest grid systems in the world. Um, and that's, that makes small modular reactors very suitable for Australia. So the idea being that you, you would position them as close as possible to the end user, and that's going to be largely big cities or you know, industrial places like, say, Gladstone in Queensland. That's the, that's the idea, is that you put them close. Well, the situation we're in now, the best option is to replace retiring coal-fired power stations with small modular reactors because you've already got all the big grid transmission systems because the existing um, coal-fired stations now are all big. They're 1,000 to 2,000 megawatt stations. So they take any small modular reactor. You've got the transmission system you can reuse, but also you've got the rest of the infrastructure like the, the cooling water supplies and a lot of the buildings. And then importantly, you've got the train staff because most of the, the back-end plant um, is exactly the same on a coal-fired station as it is in a nuclear power station. So you restrain the staff. And this is what we did in the early days in the UK. This is what Bill Gates is doing in the US with the Wyoming project. You know, mm. He's going to repower a retiring coal-fired power station. Essentially, you know, just swap over a coal-fired generator, and probably an old one at that, for nuclear modular reactors and say if you had a situation like say a Raring, which is uh, coming out of service apparently in 2025 in New South Wales I think it's about two gigawatts output you're talking what about 400 megawatts or thereabouts depending on the type of small modular reactor so could you get just five of them and just plug them in like Lego and you could get that Iraring power up would it work like that well Iraring probably produces about 50% of its capacity typically at the moment it's not actually producing that full two it's not gigs, no so. so i mean you could replace its current capacity with something like a new scale plant which is 884 megawatts got 12 modules of 77 megawatts each um and and that would replace it and and it, it would sit in a corner of a nuclear of a coal-fired power station site well this is one of the things that i find really <laughs> 
attractive about them is the small footprint, right? So you're talking, what, about 18 hectares? 18 hectares for a new scale plant, and that's typical for an, an SMR. Liddell is a 100 hectare site. A typical coal-fired power station site are all about 100 hectares plus. Mm. So it did fit in the corner of one of those sites. Now, if you, wanted, if you wanted for comparison, say, uh, solar turbine, uh, wind turbines, <laughs> a sort of wind industrial development, that was going to produce 800 uh, megawatts. Um, oh. well, I don't know if we got any that big in Australia, no. but if we had, they would be oh, oh, thousands uh, of hectares. 20 kilometres square <laughs> at least, right? Yes, yeah. You just need that space for that. And solar, of course, the same. Yes. I mean, Darlington Point, solar, 275 megawatts, uh, 1,000 hectares. So 1,000 hectares, that's a... <laughs> A third of the output you're anticipating for this new scale re uh, reactor. Yes. So you'd, you'd have to triple that. So 3,000 hectares versus 18 hectares. Yes. So, and, and you're talking about 18 hectares on, on a brownfield site, essentially. It's, it's in, already being used in, as a power station. Residents who happen to live nearby have bought their houses knowing they're <laughs> near a power station. There's none of that issue. Mm. And it keeps the local community going. You know, it, th th there's jobs there. There's all the supplies. You know, it, it, it's New Scale looked at the the financial benefits of their first development at, um, in Idaho, and the economic benefits are enormous to the local community. And it, environmental benefits. Let's come back to this. We are talking about trying to improve the environment, after all. Uh, it, it does seem to me that, that, you know, people get attached to coal, of course. It's there been our, our livelihood and it's been part of this country's, is what this country's grown on. But if you, you had a choice between an, a big coal-fired power station where you needed uh, rail car after rail car coming in with coal on the back and a dust distributing all around the local town and, and everything that goes with it, or a nuclear reactor where you just plug in the fuel once and it lasts you a long time, you'd want the nuclear, wouldn't you? Absolutely. And, and this is interesting because there's 458 reactors operating worldwide. All they need is 66,000 tonnes of uranium to, to fuel all of these reactors. Now, if that was Bayswater, it'd keep it going for about three days. That's one coal-fired station <laughs> compared to the whole world of reactors. It's a very high-density energy source, and that's good because it means a lot less mining, a lot less materials, a lot critical materials. I mean, I, I don't think people know how much concrete goes into the foundations of a wind turbine. <laughs> you know, it's over 1,600 tonnes. Plus, you know, all the tons of uh, reinforcing concrete as well. And that's just the foundation. <laughs> mm. And then you've got the, the whole wind turbine as well. I mean, if, if, if we agree that we actually want to dig up as few big holes as possible, and in Australia's a big place, it's rich in minerals, we can, we can do that. But ideally, you don't want to dig up more than you want to. With uranium, you're saying it, it's because it's so dense, you, you only have to dig a small amount of earth to get that out relative to other forms, relative to even, say, a lithium battery, right? You know, a battery uh, for, a, for a Tesla will take typically 250 tonnes of dirt 
to refine mm. to get the minerals to go into that. That's about three rail cars full of this stuff. So it, it is just inherently just less uh, has a much smaller impact on the on the natural environment right away before you even consider the yes. emissions factor. And I think some of the the critical materials there's going to be a real sustainability issue in the future with things like lithium, cobalt. I mean cobalt mainly comes from the Congo where the mining probably probably isn't as vi- environmentally good as as it is in Australia for instance. Um I think we're going to find there's a real sustainability issue with with renewables in the future. Yeah, um, it, we we actually care about biodiversity. We don't like killing off species of wildlife, but <laughs> I mean, it's a fact. You only have to read the environmental impact statements for um, particularly wind turbines, but all of those solar farms. There is clear threat to native species. Uh, and grass and all the rest through those things, um, which we 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 suffer because we think there's a greater good in 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 zero carbon energy. But with nuclear, that's infinitesimally smaller. Whatever impact and the risk on on wildlife is much smaller, right? Absolutely, yes. And I think that people are beginning to understand these sort of things now, because there was a real feeling that. The sun's free, the wind's free, therefore solar and wind are free. And now we're beginning to realise that these environmental impacts, these cost impacts are on all these. Mm. So in response to Peter Dutton's reply to the budget where he's put small nuclear modular, small modular reactors on the table, uh, it now seems... Well, inevitable, really, that this will now become an issue at the next election. In response to that, Chris Bowen, the energy minister, puts out uh, a short video on on Instagram and Twitter, um, which I think we both have a few problems with the accuracy <laughs> of. But one one thing he does talk about uh, is waste, and he shows a picture of these yellow barrels, which, um, for the best I can show, and and your 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 friend of mine. A.D. Patterson said they were probably from a Greenpeace meme, and I think that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> is there any possibility that whatever waste is produced from these uh, small modular reactors could end up in yellow barrels just sitting casually in a field? Absolutely not. Um, so if you look at the waste produced by a nuclear power plant, the day-to-day operations produce only low-level waste. So this is things like clothing, cleaning materials, um, resins, filters. So they they go into a barrel, but it's a red barrel, and it's, it's a proper barrel, um, and they're, they're stored. So Anstow's now got about 7,000 of those barrels from its 50 years of, of operation. International best practice is to put those into a low-level repository, which is a a ground-level repository, so it doesn't have to be deep underground. Best international practice is probably El Cabril in in Spain. So you put the barrel into a concrete container, and then the concrete container goes into another concrete assembly, and you seal that over. And you have to monitor it for 300 years. And by that time, all the radioactivity is, is gone. 
So eventually we've got round to getting one for ourselves. It looks as if it'll go ahead in Kimber. So that'll be our low level and that'll deal with all the, the waste from the day-to-day -day operations. So what you're left with is when you discharge the fuel from the, the reactor. So that used fuel is now very radioactive and very hot. So everybody puts it initially into a cooling pond. So the water in the pond provides shielding because water is a good shield against radiation. It also provides cooling. So you leave it there for a few years. And after that, you've got four options for what you want to do with it. A lot of people worldwide at the moment put it in a dry cask. So they take it out of the wet pond, dry it, and put it in a, a, a big steel and concrete cask. And it can last there for a hundred years while you decide what to do longer term. Second option is you send it for reprocessing. So reprocessing extracts the uranium and plutonium. You can reuse that in a, in a reactor. And then you've just got the leftover waste from that. So all the fuel from uh, Lucas Heights, from the Opal reactor and previously from the HIFAR reactor, went to, to France, reprocessed. And what we've got back from that is just intermediate level waste. Mm. So the third option is you put it in a deep geological facility. So that's probably 500 metres underground in, in, in a good solid granite or something like that. Um, this is the one that's been constructed in Finland. Uh, it's just going through its operating licence now. That'll start actually operating in the next few years. Sweden as well is going through the process. Um, France are about to start those. Um, other countries are, are looking at it as well. So that's, that holds it then safely for, for thousands of years. There's an interesting new concept now, borehole technology, because with mining techniques now you can drill down and then turn the drill sort of horizontally. So yeah, you, you that's can, a technique, of course, that they've used in... in uh, for gas in uh, fracking. Yes, mm. so you can you can uh, store fuel, use fuel in one of these boreholes. So there's a company called Deep Isolation in the USA that are, are looking at this and have done some trials and demonstrated you can put it down there and you can actually retrieve it again. CSIRO are actually looking at borehole technology, so they 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 uh, they're quite interested in this. And then the fourth option is with the future reactors, the generation four, is, is to burn it as fuel in a fast reactor. So that, that could be a real option. Uh, and this is where Australia's got some knowledge because we're a member of the generation four forum. This is one of the few bipartisan agreements that uh, Australia's got on nuclear, that we're a, we're a member of this group that's looking at advanced reactor techniques. And this, this is one of them. So I think the important point there, you know, in answer to Chris Bowen's claim that we just don't have the regulatory structures or the expertise in place, uh, or the expertise in place, is that actually we do. I mean, we've been dealing with nuclear waste since the early 1960s and very without any incident. Uh, we've got lots of options for what we can do with this. Uh, it's very clearly regulated here. It's also got an international layer of regulation over the top. Um, and what's more, we know how to dispose of this safely. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, 
as far as the regulator is concerned, international best practice is uh, an independent regulator, independent of industry. And that's what we've got in Australia already. We've got our Panzer, um, completely independent regulator, world-class regulator. It's, it's been checked over by the IAA. In fact, they're coming back uh, towards the end of this year to, to recheck again that you know, we are going to international best practice, but we, we come out very well as a, a regulator. And, and, of course, to emphasise the point you made before, because this is a dense energy source, the amount of waste is, is far smaller than any other yes. source of energy we know of. Yes. In and, volume. And I, I think we really haven't started looking at solar waste yet, but when you talk about mm. millions of solar panels, uh, uh, certainly at the moment it isn't economic to take a solar panel apart because the cost of taking it apart and the energy taking it apart is far more than the materials you can recover from it. So it's at the moment they're just going to landfill. And that's happening now. I mean, people shouldn't be under any illusion about this. There are, we have solar panels that are uh, more than 15 or, or so years old. They've run out. Of, they're, they're, they're not doing the job anymore. They have yes. to be disposed of that way. And the same with wind turbines, right? Absolutely. I mean, the wind turbine blades in particular, um, you can't recycle those. And so, uh, you know, we can argue about the, t- the to- relative toxicity, but certainly in terms of the quantity, the bulk, actually we'd have to say that, that uh, waste from renewable energy plants looks like a bigger problem than nuclear. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And at the moment, when you build a solar farm, there's no provision for decommissioning uh, mm. and, you know, having to financially provide for the the final decommissioning and waste as there is for every nuclear plant well i i think this is something in a regulatory sense we we should catch up with very quickly and it won't be hard we'd simply say that you you have the same obligations apply to a a, a solar plant as do to a, a coal mine for instance you 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 not only have to make good that land when you finish with it but you actually have to provision and put money aside for that so we know you're not you're going to do it Absolutely. Okay, well, that's useful. Uh, and we haven't even got on to the question of, <laughs> of cost, but, of course, this will be the big thing. I, I think, I mean, obviously the opposition have made, oh, sorry, the government have made it a big thing. This is their primary objection to nuclear at the moment is the cost. But more than I think in terms of winning the popular vote, it will be the big thing because it seems to me, in fact, we've seen in surveys people don't really much care so much where their energy comes from as as what the the bill is at the end of the month that that is the thing that's biting so we're going to have to be able to show that this will uh, lead to uh, lower cost electricity uh, now Boeing quotes are still first of all with the CSIRO Gencost report this is comes out every year right the CSIRO supposed to be a reliable scientific organization and to en- estimate how much uh, each source of electricity comes through, and they say uh, nuclear is much more expensive than renewables or indeed coal or gas. Uh, but there are problems with their methodology, right? Absolutely. Um, so every year, um, CSIRO gets Oricon to do a, an estimate of all the, the costs of, of all technologies, except nuclear. 
So Oricon don't do nuclear. So Oricon, I think, do quite a good job in looking at all the costs of, of, of projects, um, and that all gets listed in the GenCost report. The last time they did nuclear was 2018. GHD did it, um, and unfortunately, I think, I don't know whether they didn't quite understand, but um, they picked uh, a, a cost of a large power station at, at $8,000 a kilowatt installed capacity. And that's, then, a large, that's a large nuclear. A large nuclear yeah. station. And then they found a 2015 IEA report that said SMRs may be 100% more cost than, than uh, a large station. So that meant 16,000. And that's the figure that's been kept on ever since. So that there's really no basis for it because, of course, later IEA reports have said, no, they're not going to be more expensive, they're actually going to be cheaper because they're, they're simpler and they're going to be factory built and in production. Um, but CSIRO won't change that figure. And that's the figure that Boeing keeps quoting every time he stands up, 16,000, too expensive to consider. Um, and, you know, this, this is really unfortunate because the GenCost report, most of it is, is reasonable um, and it's taken by the government uh, as the absolute, you know, figure for their, for their policy. And, and it is, this is basically an error. Then there's other errors in it. Um, uh, there was a report done from, for EPIA by David Callan, which mm. um, identifies some other you know, sort of major errors in the methodology. Yeah, I thought he, he did a good job of uh, identifying where they're not comparing <laughs> apples with apples. So, for instance, um, they take the cost of nuclear as they expected to be at 2030. They don't include the capital costs or the sunk capital costs in any renewable uh, infrastructure or, or that's put in between now and then. So Snowy Hydro, for instance, we know it's going to cost about $10 billion. Presumably that's not counted into calculating the cost, but they do calculate it for nuclear. So that seems to me to be a, a rather obvious <laughs> methodolo methodological flaw um, that we can, we can say this is not a reliable certainly not reliable enough for the government to base its entire energy policy on, which is what it's doing, right? It is, yeah. I mean, it, 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 the nuclear seems to have come down to really the cost. I think the, the safety is now pretty well accepted. There's obvious solutions for the waste, so the cost is, is the major issue. And to be fair, the, the cost of SMRs is not, uh, it's not yet certain because we're really at the beginning of deploying these um we've got uh f-o-a-k first of a kind i love that acronym when you read it quickly f-o-a-k first of a kind is where we're at both in canada uh, i think wyoming uh, and elsewhere so obviously when you put the first one in it's going to be more expensive than subsequent ones um i use the analogy that the first IKEA bookcase you put up is always much harder than subsequent <laughs> ones. You learn as you go along. There's economies of scale, and we expect with small modular reactors because they're going to be built on a production line basis, much as you build a, an aircraft, that that 
will lead to costs coming down. So we don't know in the long run, or we can make estimates how much they'd be. But let, let's 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 make a stab at it. You've done a you've, you you commissioned some research to yes. to try and find out what one would cost. Tell yeah. me about it. So we, we contacted New Scale uh, and said we'd like uh, a detailed estimate of, of the cost of building a New Scale plant in Australia. So they got Floor, who's the major industrial constructor, um, and they looked at Australian labour conditions, Australian concrete, etc. And, and they gave us a figure uh, for building a, a new scale plant in Australia. And that came out around 5 billion for uh, 884 megawatts net plant. So that's 12 77 megawatt gross uh, units. So I very much agree with, with Bowen's 5 billion. You know, I think he's about on the right track with that. But then you look at what would be the cost of uh, solar plants to, to generate that same output. So we, we looked at Darlington Point, which is the big solar plant in, in New South Wales. Um, it, it cost um, 450 million, that plant, to generate the same output as, as the, the new scale plant, you'd need 11 of them. So 11 at 450 million comes out the same as the, as, as the 5 million for a new scale plant. But for the solar plant, you've then got to add on the cost of storage, the, the, the amount you lose going in and out of storage, the cost of the additional transmission you need to get connect up that storage plant, the cost of all the interstate transmission that they're proposing to try and move it around the country. And then you've got the lifetime. It's 25 years against the 60 years of a nuclear plant. So... We think that if you take the whole system costs and, and look at it properly, new solar probably comes out about double nuclear cost in, in the long term. Mm. And I, I don't think we're looking properly at a whole of system costs and how we're going to run the system. Yeah, because we've, we've been working on this LCOE, Levelised Cost of Energy Model, which was uh, developed by Lazard's, it's been in common use, but it has problems. It seems to me that it's it's an it's it's a bit like saying uh, we will judge the price of milk by the price it is at the farm gate. Uh, you know, I don't know fifty cents. What, what what do we give farmers? More than that, I hope. But, <laughs> but because by the time you and I come to buy it, it's, it's probably a dollar sixty to two dollars, right? So th that's the real point at which the cost matters, not the farm gate price, right? And, Absolutely. And what I think what you're saying and what many others have said is with renewable energy sources, wind, solar, um, you, you have to transport it a long way. So that means new transmission lines, that's got to be paid for. You also have, you lose power in the process of transmitting, it dissipates. And then you've got to work out how you back that up. So you might have to have a gas uh, generator that kicks in or some other form or you might build some dirty great battery or something. But that means that the cost of getting it from there to the home 
you end up paying much more by the time it gets into your house. Yes, particularly if you're going to go to to, to zero emissions and not using gas for firming, then you've got to have a lot of storage. So you you lose going in and out of storage. Um, you know, Snowy Hydro is probably about seventy percent. Yeah. Uh, have you get back so and and we don't want to get sidetracked with this too much the subject is nuclear but on that question of storage it seems to me there is no feasible way and no technological advance in sight that could give us the quantity of storage we would need by 2030 to run on 82 percent renewables well there's no big incentive at the moment to build say huge um, hydroelectric projects you I mean we would need sort of eight snowy twos eight and <laughs> no we're having difficulty with one snowy two yeah one snowy two is, <laughs> is going to take us 10 years or more from start to finish so you just multiply that and, and batteries i mean you look at south australia when the sun goes down if the, the wind's not blowing then it's 85% gas, 15% imports from Victoria. What you don't see is any storage going into that. Very, very little. Although they've got the big battery. Yeah. And you'd, you'd imagine that would be used, but it isn't. It makes all its money on FCAS, the, the you know, frequency control auxiliary services that you used to get from free from a big generator, but mm. now we have to pay for so cause the, the question is, you know, when, when the minister says that nuclear is too expensive, the, the, the real question we should be saying is compared to what, and I think well, this last section of the conversation, I think we have established that while $5 billion sounds like a lot of money, uh, when you look at the alternatives, it starts to look very reasonable. Absolutely. Um, I think if, you again, you look at the whole system costs, then nuclear is very, very comparative to other technologies. Now, let's go to one other uh, point that uh, the Minister made in his video, and that is that we would need 80 of these. Not only that, but they would be dotted dotted around the country. <laughs> and he put up a map which showed them, I think you'd see them up in Carnarvon in far north Western Australia and down there at the tip of Tasmania. And uh, it wouldn't. I mean, first of all, will we need eighty, and and secondly, will we actually distribute them in that <laughs> haphazard manner? Well, we looked at what it would take to replace all the coal-fired generation with nuclear, which is seventy percent of our power, basically well, seventy to seventy-five percent of our in, power. In twenty twenty-one, coal generated fifty-one percent, which was. 136 terawatt hours. So we said, how many new scale would it take to replace that? And it's 18. So that, that then cost 92 billion to replace all the coal. So we said, what, it would, what, what would it take if we did solar instead? So you need 198 solar plants. That's 198,000 hectares and, you know, 198 million solar panels and it had cost 90, 90 billion so about the same but of course then you've got huge amounts of storage and huge amounts of transmission and everything so you know even on a I, I don't know where the 80 nuclear power plants came from 
because we could replace all the coal with 18. Yeah, but I think when we're talking about the quantity of energy that we need, yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems to be a, a reasonable consensus opinion that we will need a lot more electricity, a lot more power, because our, our use of it is going to grow you know, not not in not inconsiderably when we start to electrify cars and what have you, and it, it also seems reasonable that if we want to get into hydrogen some way down the track, if that was to prove, uh, you know, feasible, it's still not. We don't know that, but if we did, we're going to need a lot, a lot of electricity for that. So we need the capacity to scale up, don't we? We need the capacity to say, well, we thought we needed X, but we're going to need double that. Yes. Now, it's going to be much easier to do that with nuclear than, than through renewables. Absolutely, because you, you don't need huge amounts of materials and you don't need huge amounts of land. I mean, the, there's the transmission capacity on the existing coal sites to put two or three of, of these nuclear plants. But you mentioned hydrogen, and I think what's really interesting is the latest Lazard. They've just um, produced new figures in, literally in this last month. And Lazar's not known to be sort of pro-nuclear in, in mm. any way, but they say that the cheapest cost of producing hydrogen is from existing nuclear power plants. Yeah. Because it's got the cheapest operating cost. So, no, that's, that's an interesting <laughs> finding from Lazar. As it would, sunk costs <laughs> and you can, you can and your, your marginal cost is very small. Yes, mm. absolutely. Mm. Uh, well, well, that's... Um, that's killed off that one about <laughs> about the quantity that you'd need, um, and and of course I think when you're describing the costs, you didn't factor in the costs will reduce as we got uh, extra exploitation. They will. So what's the experience abroad uh, in Canada? Start with Canada. The Canadian government, the centre left government, Justin Trudeau is right behind this. Trudeau says that climate change is far too important to leave anything off the table and they've put 970 million Canadian dollars into this, just over a million dollars Australian, billion dollars Australian, uh, to build a small modular reactor in Darlington, Ontario. Where's that one at? So that one now, um, Darlington's good because it's an existing nuclear site so it's actually licensed for a, a new reactor. So they've got over that stage of it already. They've applied for a construction license. Um, they're starting to prepare the place. Uh, it's going to be a General Electric BWRX300 reactor. Um, and it's, it's really, it's based on the old... Um, General Electric BWRs, so it's it's not sort of completely new technology, so it should be fairly easy to to get through the licensing process on that. So that one's going ahead, but Canada's got this roadmap where they look at various options. So as well as the bigger SMRs, they're looking at the small reactors for remote mine sites as well. So they're progressing those as, as well. And that's another area we should be investigating because we've got, like Canada, we've got lots of remote sites, um, particularly mine sites, all diesel at the moment. Replace the, diesel. So you could put a micro reactor in, and because um, they're using them too, I think, or planning to use them in Canada for remote indigenous communities. We've got those too. Yes. Uh, and at the moment, uh, those mine sites, indigenous communities, some of them 
uh, certainly a lot of the islands of Australia, Christmas Island, Norfolk Island, uh, Macquarie Island and so forth, are powered by diesel. Diesel is sent in by ships. Not a good. The thinking is, I think, that they would be very, you know, converting those to a small modular reactor or a micro-modular reactor would be economically viable. Absolutely. It comes in a shipping container, quickly installed. I mean, they're talking about 30 days to install one of these reactors, and it, it would last for many years. And then thinking about our, our wider international responsibilities in the Pacific, the um, Pacific Islands uh, are largely fueled on diesel. 70, 80% of their electricity in some cases comes from diesel. We'd be well placed to assist them, wouldn't we, make that transition? Absolutely. And, and we'd get a lot of credit, I think, if we, we did that. You know, we, this is an area where, because of our position in the region, you know, we could be a real leader in, in this region. So on this, on the the production side of these small modular reactors, could we actually make them here? Could we go into production here? Or would that be sensible, or would we look to get them from, you know, Seattle? In the same way we get <laughs> Boeing aircraft from Seattle. Well, the, the first ones are likely to be produced overseas, but we we could easily become a centre for manufacturing for for our region, and, and I think this is really what we ought to be looking at. Yeah, even if even if it was a we were licensed to produce something somebody else had designed, it would be yeah very feasible, right? Because we we've got the manufacturing capability, because these these plants don't need the huge forgings that the the big reactors need, which is quite specialised. It's the they're smaller ones, and that would solve a lot of our energy security problems, right? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> yeah, so. I mean, people may may judge this as they wish, but it seems to be we, we've struggled today. Let's put it: that we have struggled to come up with any uh, negative arguments on this. And, and we haven't even looked at advanced reactors that produce process heat and and um, reduce emissions in other sectors that we've got to. Reducing. We'll talk about in. those because we 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 focus almost obsessively on electricity production but of course that's only 34 uh, percent or the, i may have yeah. the figure wrong but it's yes. a it's around a third of our yes. of our emissions come from that we've then got to do with transport agriculture uh, construction well can nuclear get us some way over the line with those things as well certainly process heat because advanced reactors uh, operate at higher temperatures and can produce process heat so we, we we can produce heat for practically all industrial processes. Interestingly, one of the things that's um, is happening in the US now is Dow Chemicals have, have just announced that they're going to have one of these advanced reactors, the X-Energy reactor, and it's going to produce electricity and heat uh, for one of their big chemical sites. So and they've, That you know, would include ammonia and... and um, you know the, the things that are necessary for farming. Yes, you broad, could, broad, you you could know, do all, broad the, acre all the range of that. We yeah. can crack that issue yeah. too. Yeah, probably not all forms of transport though. I mean, nobody's contemplating putting one of these in an aircraft yet, or even in a you know in a 
in an interstate truck or anything. That's just not a feasible option. Well, you you, you say that, but it's interesting that the, the first molten salt reactor experiment was in the US, and it was the one that was designed to go in a, an aircraft and, and make aircraft propulsion. And I think, um, fortunately, it never flew in anger. <laughs> so <laughs> I agree with you that it's probably not... Uh, the right for that but it, uh, I, I'd be right in saying wouldn't I that there is no country in the world that is 100% nuclear or is no there? and I don't think you want to be because I, I think you need diversity of supply so the, the big key is what's the best mix for my country and obviously in, in Australia solar and wind can play a part in it that I think the what we've got to look at is what's the best proportion of all the, the energy mixes to get reliable, affordable, least emissions, least cost. But you can imagine a world where we'd, ha we'd have baseload power coming from nuclear to replace coal. We, we may be able to phase out quicker than people. Imagine if we could get these up and running fairly quickly. Um, phase out the coal, we, we, we've got existing renewables maybe we'll get extra renewables in if people can make the business case and gas that would seem to be a pretty good energy mix very very low emission a little bit there from gas and various things but easily controlled you can you can ramp it up and down to meet demand and secure we're never going to lose it absolutely and all the modern reactors are designed to load follow so the old reactors did, did like to be operated at sort of full load and not moved around too much. But all the modern ones are designed to fully load follow. And of course, they have to do this in France anyway. I mean, they're used to doing load following because they have to, because they've got so much nuclear, it's sort of 70% nuclear. Um, their reactors have to react to the, the different loads. So they've got lots of experience of, of load following. I guess the one thing we haven't covered off on in terms of possible objections is, and Boeing made this point, that they are, they are they are incredibly long in their development period and they're delayed and so forth. Uh, the Canadian SMR, I think they're saying they'll have it up and running by 2028. Um, there's always delays, of course. Is that a realistic time frame? I think it is because you, you're looking at a really experienced reactor vendor in, in, in GE, um, you're looking at the Canadians that know how to do these things. As long as they get the supply chain organised so that it's, it's, it's ready, you know, all the belts, parts are ready, um, yeah, I, I think they'll do it okay. So it's not unrealistic to say that if we, if we could change the policy here to eliminate the moratorium and um, have... I think some encouragement and investment from the government. I don't think this is going to be private sector, although you want private sector money in there, but it's going to be a lot of government investment, I think. Uh, then we could have something up and running by 2030 or not long afterwards with the possibility that we could uh, have a program to put in more of these and possibly phase out coal by 2040. Is that realistic? Well, there's a lot of coal-fired stations that are going to be shutting down from 2040, you know, up to 2050, they could all easily be replaced, you know, 
starting from the ones that are shutting down in the mid-2030s, you could certainly do that. Well, that's a, that's a really encouraging piece of news there, <laughs> Tony, to, on which to end. I, we don't often end so many uh, podcasts on energy on such an optimistic <laughs> note, so thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for your expertise, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Nick.